The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. Hi everyone, I'm Thomas Sanjuro and you're listening to The Secrets of Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, the 1982 sci-fi classic. Joining me on the panel tonight are Thomas Salerno. Hi, Thomas. Hello, other Thomas. I know, it's kind of <laughs> odd saying your own name, so I'm going to have to get used to doing that throughout yeah. the course of this. <laughs> and uh, Jack uh, Berzini. Hi, Jack. How's it going? It's going all right. We seem to do a lot of these uh, sci-fi uh, classics together. I think that's yeah, been pigeonholed, but I definitely do not mind it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before we start, I have to ask you guys, which edition of the movie did you watch? And if you don't know, it's OK. I, I, I can. There's a very clear indicator that says what it, which one mm-hmm. you watch <laughs> if you don't know. Yeah. Um. I've so I've seen the original theatrical version. That was actually the first one that I saw. And but since then, I've only ever watched the final cut because it kind of it is the definitive version. Definitely. Awesome. How about you, uh, Thomas? Did you? So, yeah, did you know there was there were different ones? (laughs) I did. And this was actually my first time ever seeing this movie. And I had heard from many people. If you watch it, watch the final cut. So that is the version I saw. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. I, I, Jack, I'm like you, I watched the, the original way back when, and, um, then caught the TV version of it, which is pared down and weird and, uh, and got the final cut for myself finally, because I wanted to show it to my wife and to my kids. And so, uh, you know, I ended up getting the final cut because I wanted it. So if, if you don't know, uh, listeners, there are three technically versions of the movie. Uh, there was a theatrical release that, was preceded by a, a, a pre-release that got panned widely by people because it was too hard to follow. People couldn't understand what was going on. They were confused by all the different sci-fi stuff that was happening. And so Ridley Scott was tasked with bringing back in uh, Harrison Ford and doing a detective style voiceover. So, you know, you had, imagine those old uh, noir detective movies and uh, Harrison Ford had to do a voiceover for the movie. And then they also had to do a happy ending for the movie that they they kind of tacked onto the end because people didn't like the way uh, the movie ended. So the two things that you'll notice if you are watching the theatrical release is that there is a Harrison Ford voiceover running through the whole movie and then that there's this bizarre kind of uh, dreamlike sequence at the end where uh, the two main characters are driving off uh, to the north uh, and kind of have a happy finale. Yeah. Fun fact about that ending, the footage they used um, with of the car driving through like those lush green forests. That's actually they just took that straight from The Shining. It's that same footage at the beginning of The Shining. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Now that you mention it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's uh, that's funny because really Scott didn't want to do it. Like he was. he He really hated the concept that people weren't smart enough to get this movie. He he thought it was a real uh, kind of an insult to the movie itself. And so then. In the 90s, uh, some people started messing around with it and made a an updated version that they called the the definitive version of the movie. And so really, really, Scott said, no, 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 that's terrible. It's like a director's cut because they didn't like 
modify anything. They just found some old footage that was sitting around, some 70 millimeter footage that was sit, sitting around and like stuck it together as a movie. And so it came out looking terrible and it was just really not very good. Um, and so Ridley Scott got involved and the major things that he did was he cut the happy ending. He removed all of Harrison Ford's voiceovers and he added this dream sequence in the middle with uh, this unicorn uh, passing through uh the Deckard's uh, dreams and which is important to the movie, uh, but also kind of a reference to one of his later works, uh, which came out just a few years after this one called legend. So, you know, really Scott's just a weird guy. <laughs> it's like just, <laughs> yeah. just a very bizarre <laughs> uh, figure in movies, almost a, almost the level of, um, uh, you know, well, I, I just, he's just an artist. He's an artist. And I think that, you mm -hmm. know, uh, people know him for movies like gladiator um, but really that's like his second career almost because before that he did some incredible sci-fi that was just really weird and very, very out there. And Blade Runner's like, I think a perfect example of that. Um, so before we get into fanboying, cause <laughs> I could go on and on and on about it, like everybody involved in this movie, I wanted to ask you guys first impressions or impressions of this rewatch through, uh, Thomas, this was your first time watching it. So uh, how'd you feel about it? Um, I was very impressed, actually. Um, I I love the core concept, this kind of noir detective story uh, transported into a cyberpunk dystopian future. I really thought that was neat. I liked that the movie, at least the final cut, does think the audience is smart enough to understand it. I like that there wasn't a lot of handholding. I liked the really visual storytelling i mean there's a lot of scenes where there's no dialogue and mm -hmm. it's just purely visual storytelling i really like that um the ending um well not really the ending more like the climax i had a few problems with but nothing where it was like this breaks the movie completely like nothing mm -hmm. like that uh, overall i thought it's a great movie and if, if you're a sci-fi fan definitely see it because it has influenced a ton of stuff you know, to the present day, movies, video oh, yeah. games, uh, animated series, what have you. I, I would say that it's as influential as Star Wars easily. And I, and I know that's a yeah, big definitely. statement, but it really I, I, I'll stand by it for sure. OK, so how about you, Jack? This is your 12th time seeing it. <laughs> this is about pricing this movie like 10 or 15 times yeah. at least. Um, yeah. Uh, I agree with a lot of what you said, Thomas, about uh, just the visual storytelling and then it doesn't feel like it has to explain everything to you. This is really my favorite kind of movie where it's you get this big, expansive, lived in universe, but you don't get a bunch of exposition. You just kind of get immersed in it and just like seeing like the set design and like all the different random things you see like on the streets and the way it is. Um, I just I really like that. And I also like um, I'm a sucker for anything with awesome matte paintings yes. and miniatures. Yeah. And this movie has a lot of that. And I just absolutely love that kind of thing. Definitely. I think I think the hardest part, the hardest pill to swallow is the 2019 uh, <laughs> time time period on it, you know, where it's like so much of so much is right and so much is wrong <laughs> in, the, in the movie because it's, you know, it was made in 1982 and they had this vision of what the, the future was going to be and. I think we all thought we were going to be a lot further along than we were in um, in 2019. <laughs> but, well, I, I uh, love yeah. the whole retro futuristic <laughs> aesthetic. Mm -hmm. That was was part of the mm -hmm. appeal of the movie for me. I'm like, it actually reminded me a lot of, I don't know if either of you guys have seen the the Batman Beyond animated show, mm -hmm. but like yeah. 
the the opening shot yeah. of the movie, I was like, this is Neo Gotham from Batman Beyond. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I had no clue that that was an influence on one of my favorite TV shows. Yeah. Well, and, and you, you watch, too, like the opening, um, the whole opening scrawl is uh, from Fifth Element. There's that same kind of city feel it's almost like you're living in the same place yeah. <laughs> if you look at the two the two different cities yeah so, yeah you're, you're right it like it's influenced so much and i think the i think this one's kind of set apart from uh from the other because star wars is an epic right and it's kind of it's pulpy in the sense that it's you know science fiction pulpy but it's it's not pulpy in the like detective story or you know really lived in place uh feel and that's that's what i think you get here is like this this reality that is grounded it's not a not a galaxy far far away it's it's right here it's what our future could be and you know i, I love that that aspect of it that that it mm-hmm. kind of it feels like this could be real like this could be where we are and 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 definitely you know how we're dealing with life uh and the things that we're talking about because there are a lot of conversations that come up uh, around this movie that are similar to things that we're worried about and thinking about today. I was going to say something I, I like about that. Speaking of the whole galaxy far, far away kind of thing is throughout the movie, you see all these different advertisements, all these voiceovers from like uh, that ship flying overhead. It's like, you want to get off world because earth is terrible. Now and this is kind <laughs> of like you're seeing that sci-fi future where a lot of people are going off and living off planet, but these are the people who are stuck on earth. And this is, this is like, why everyone wants to leave so it's nice to see kind of the, the bottom of the barrel feel right. of that but enjoy coke <laughs> yeah because <laughs> it pops up a few times stereo phones <laughs> yeah I, I spotted an atari logo too yeah <laughs> yeah no it was it was great i mean it's uh it's it's definitely it definitely catches the what what happens when we let billboards get out of control feel um so before we talk too much about the themes, I want to kind of place this movie in its place. Uh, and the best way to do that, I think, is to talk about the the people who came together to make it, because it is such a weird and incredible group of people that either were not involved in things before or were involved in things, but not necessarily in the sci fi field. And it, so there's just a lot to it. So I want, want to unpack some of this stuff. So first thing to talk about is Ridley Scott, because I, I love Ridley Scott. I think his stuff's amazing. Um, if you only know Ridley Scott from his newer stuff, like Gladiator and after this is a very different kind of movie. And don't go into it thinking that you're going to get the same kind of thing. And I think it's because he's honed his craft and has gotten better at not like over overstaying on artistic um, scenes uh, because that's if, if I have one complaint about this movie, it's that there's a couple of spots where things are done for an artistic purpose and they don't fit with the broader design of the movie. And that, that it, it bothers me because it's kind of jarring. I think I think we might come back to that, uh, Thomas, when we talk about the the climax scene yeah. where it's kind of like. Okay, hang on a minute. Um, and so, so you know, Ridley Scott, before this, he had done the movie Alien and a bunch of other stuff. But the other stuff that he'd done was all like, you know, minor films or um, directing uh, music videos, things like that. So a lot of really avant-garde stuff. And then Alien to kind of just, you know, there's a sci-fi movie. And that's a very, another classic that's, you know, really got its place uh, as kind of this weird outsider for the sci-fi genre at the time. And then two years after this one, he did the movie Legend with Tom Cruise, uh, which if you haven't seen that movie, 
you have to watch that movie because it's amazing. Uh, has Tom Cruise as the lead character, and then uh, Tim Curry plays the devil or the dark one. I should say not not yeah. the devil, the dark one. Uh, and it's it's just bizarre. <laughs> it's just so yeah, weird. It's... But definitely one of my favorite movies. <laughs> <laughs> so, how much Ridley Scott did you guys know from of those older ones versus the newer kind of stuff that he does? I think I've seen most of his movies, and I definitely. I'm definitely a fan of his pre gladiator stuff. Like I like gladiator a lot, but that's really when I feel like he kind of just threw in the towel in terms of, I'm just going to make these big commercial movies. And I don't <laughs> feel like he's really done something that's been really that interesting since, since that I definitely am a fan of like alien and blade runner and his earlier output when mm-hmm. it was still more artistic and weird before it got very polished. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't too familiar with his work. I mean, I had seen gladiator and, I saw Alien like a long time ago. It, I saw it way too young <laughs> and it, tra- mm. <laughs> it traumatized me and I haven't seen it since. But like besides those two, I really wasn't that familiar with his work. So I really wasn't sure what to expect going into this movie, which was nice because I, I let it surprise <laughs> me. I was going to say that's a great that's a great way to go into this movie, I think. <laughs> Yeah, so if you haven't watched Blade Runner yet, don't watch it. Don't don't listen to the rest of the podcast. Go watch it and then yeah. come back because not having an expectation is really it, it definitely helps with this movie because it does kind of sideswipe you with a lot of the stuff that that happens in it. And then the music is Vangelis, who like I think if anybody's going to know Vangelis, it's from the Chariots of Fire theme song, right? Like that's that's where you're going to know Vangelis from. And the music for this movie is just so otherworldly. It's crazy. I, I, I love it, but it's it is really yeah. just weird. Yeah, it reminded me of like something. From like an old school video game, but like clocked up to like 11 or 12. It was kind of like and, and I'm, I'm sure the the music for Metroid was inspired by this but it kind of reminded me of like a metroid soundtrack turned up to 11 it was really good i liked it yeah i like how you get that juxtaposition juxtaposition of like the very ethereal minimalist electronic music that is much more about the texture than is about any sort of melody but then you get that like noir uh saxophone that comes in that gives it like Mm -hmm. that that gangster feel yeah i like that you kind of get those two overlay and they work really well together yeah, it, it's such a weird back and forth between those two. And then all the little piano motifs that that get thrown in that are either part of the the actual story or that just kind of fill in that space between those two different uh, things that are working at, along the whole time. And it's it, it really does. It fits that that noir detective in a cyberpunk universe and just mashes those things together so well. And then the last one that I want to mention is one that, that sadly we lost um, as as we're recording. We lost this week, actually, just a few days ago. Douglas Trumbull, who is the effects director, the 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 all of the, the special effects and stuff. And he did 2001 A Space Odyssey. He did the first Star Trek movie. Um, and this was like the third entry into like really big uh, movie special effects that he had. And I, I think. I, you you don't meet anyone who works in special effects that doesn't admire and respect this guy's work to an incredible degree. And I'll just give the example of uh, Adam Savage. If he, if you know who Adam Savage yeah. is, uh, he loves Blade Runner and has done so many uh, 
revisions on his own version of the the blaster prop yeah. <laughs> from the movie. Yeah, definitely. And that's this has that same big feel that you get from those other two movies. Uh just it's like a really, really beautiful film. I was mm-hmm. very impressed by the effects. Like I kept thinking to myself during some of those shots where you see the huge matte paintings or like what must be miniature shots, some of these like with the big cityscapes, I was like, they don't do movie effects like this anymore. Like I kept saying that to myself. I'm like, this looks terrific. You know, like the, uh, as as much as CGI is advanced and has gotten better in a lot of ways, there's still that tactile feeling of a model shot where you're just like, wow, like you can see all the tiny little details. Just terrific. And I just loved how like um, the the police, the flying police car prop, mm-hmm. that was very yeah. impressive. And I just saw when doing a little bit of research before we started that I think one of those still exists as like a prop like that it's some that they have it somewhere at some studio but it just looks like an amazing car prop yeah and i i I like this era of filmmaking where we this is before you had cgi where you could just model whatever you wanted and also before you had studios had really put in the budget to fabricate a lot of stuff so you get that feel where you can tell they just like got different things and put them together like the like a lot of times when they build those miniature sets like the big Tyrell building, they would just buy a bunch of different models and use all the little pieces and to build like all those greebles on the side and everything. And Oh, yeah, they're kipash. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I like that that put together feel that you don't really get anymore with CGI. It, make, it makes it feel more more real. And I think that the more you get into that CGI, the, the cleaner it gets and the less like, you know, because I mean. There's just something about putting a building together that you you just don't have limitless resources to do it. So you end up hodgepodging stuff like that a lot. And I feel like, you know, having to do it on a model basis, you know, with the kit bashing and stuff, it it gives it that extra level of believability. So, yeah, I, I definitely miss that that part of things. And, and I, I'm, I'm always amazed. It, it never takes me far enough out of the fiction to make me feel um like i've lost something but i'm always amazed watching something that's that's practical effects and going wow that's amazing i wonder how they did that yeah and, yeah exactly you know it, it it makes you really there and but it doesn't disconnect that disbelief the way that cgi does when you like watch it you're like huh <laughs> you're like oh that's that was CGI. On a computer. <laughs> yeah yeah it kind of makes me think about how um if you look at the way and this is that same era, so it's got that same kind of feel, but like old video games on like the original Nintendo system or on the Commodore 64, all those different crazy tricks they had to do to get those games to run on those systems with that limited amount of memory and processing power. Whereas nowadays you get all these games that look amazing and can do way more than any of those old systems could ever do, but there's no limitations. So it's not as impressive i feel like it's like well yeah of course they could make that look super realistic because they have unlimited processing power i like the different tricks that people had to do to get those things to work and the same thing with these special effects and these models i I like that feel it's got a real craftsmanship feel definitely yeah and i think that's that's something that's um they're they're moving back towards it i think a lot of people are seeing that it's something that that watchers prefer that the people who are going to the movies prefer the practical effects wherever they can be put in uh so i'm glad that there's there's kind of a movement back towards that at this point 
So now we can't we can't talk about the people that made the movie without talking about all the actors, because this is like a who's who of science fiction actors with Daryl Hannah thrown in. Um, but I think, you know, you got Harrison Ford, you got Rooker Hauer, uh, Sean Young, who goes on to do uh, Dune uh, shortly after this. So it's one that we've covered before. Um, Edward James Olmos, who has almost no screen time, but makes such a huge impression in this movie. And I, just such a great role for him and then daryl hannah who is creepy as all get out and amazing uh emmett walsh uh who does the the detective bryant character and really sells the the detective noir yeah. <laughs> portion of this film <laughs> i couldn't get over that because bryant is the name of my cat <laughs> so oh, nice. <laughs> whenever they kept saying bryant i kept going oh boy <laughs> <laughs> What are we in for now? <laughs> uh, yeah. And then you got James Hong was in it, too, which was really cool. He's the eye, uh, the eye doctor or the, the eye maker for the Nexus models. Um, so, yeah, it's just really crazy cast. You know, and I mean, this is uh, Harrison Ford uh, in the midst of being Han Solo hasn't been Indiana Jones yet. Right. So it's kind of a, a you know, before Indiana, and that's what m- m- one of my kids commented. They're like, hey, it's like a young Indiana Jones. And I'm like, well, I mean, yes, you're right. <laughs> That's accurate. <laughs> so who out of the out of the actors, who did you guys like the best? Who do you think gave the best performance? And I'm, I'm going to make you pick. <laughs> you have to pick yeah, one. I mean, <laughs> it's got to be Rucker Hauer. Yeah. Yeah. And as much as I, I love this movie and as much as I love Harrison Ford, I, I feel like he almost overacts his underacting, if that makes any sense. Like mm. he he plays his like worn out, like tired detective part almost too much i feel like at, at some points there's a lot of yawning in this movie where yeah. It's just, yeah it's like him him yawning and then trying to find a, a cup so yeah a drink. how about you thomas who'd you like the best well i i wasn't as too familiar with a lot of the other actors i mean i'm sure i've seen them in places like i just couldn't remember where so i kind of really latched on to harrison ford in this and i just thought he, he did a tremendous job like really showing like his his range as an actor because like decker goes through a lot in this and he (laughs) has to go through a lot of different emotions like i said there are a lot of scenes where there's no dialogue but i still can get what the deckard character is thinking you know or i can imagine what he's thinking and i just thought that you know it it must have been you know harrison ford's acting combined with the directing it just really sold that character to me. I was fully on board with whatever he was doing. Yeah, he was he was definitely our eyes on the world. Like that was he was our way to watch things and that and it and it shades the movie, which is really cool because the whole the whole thematic concept of the movie is that, you know, we're we're watching these these not humans and what they're doing. And that's the problem that he's constantly having is that he's having to retire these things that are very human like but he keeps trying to tell himself they're not actually humans and and you get that it really comes across in the way that the scenes are shot the way that he's um the way that he's feeling after each thing that happens and um i think it's it, he does a really good job now i'm I'm gonna pick uh, sean young i think she did such a fantastic job as rachel and it's such a weird role uh to try and balance that line between being a person who's just discovering that they're not 
actually who they think they are and trying to develop a sense of self at the same time. And she really captures that feel in such a bizarre way. Uh, like she's, she's, she feels otherworldly, which she should. And then she really sells it to you where it's like, but she's not that different. And that, and, and she captures both of those things at the same time. And it's real. That's not a, not an easy thing to do. And it, this movie would have failed if any of those three, I think Harrison Ford, director Howard or Sean Young had not, really embraced what they were doing and done it as well as they did. So, you know, you can say what you want about any of them as actors or actress, but they did a fantastic job in this movie. So, um, I think we can, we can take here. I want to, I want to talk about some of the themes because I think it's really important too, but before we do, I want to talk about the people that make it possible for us to create the secrets of movie and TV. So I'll take a moment to thank some of our patrons, uh, Michael in, Daniel E, Kevin N, and Gary, Gary J, and Michelle H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of movies and TV and all the shows here at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So we've danced around the themes a bit, but, um, and I'm going to, before I talk about what my feeling for the theme was, I want you guys to tell me what you feel like the theme of this movie was, because it's very open-ended. I, I think it's, it, it's clear that there's like a, a, a direction that it wants you to go, but I don't feel like it lays it on the plate for you. Like you really have to kind of pick up and run with it. So, uh, Thomas, let's start with you. Like, what do you, what do you think the theme of this movie was like the really core central thing that it was talking about. It's funny, right? Cause there, there are so many themes I think in the movie, but you have, but there must be one core one there. I, I think it's probably identity, like what makes us human. And I think part of that is like mortality. Cause there's a lot about mortality in this movie where, you know, like some of the replicants, you know, are ve- are terrified that they're going to die. You know, they know they're going to die and they know it's going to be soon. And so like does that sort of fear of death kind of make them, you know, more human than everyone else thinks they are because everyone else just treats them like objects. But yeah, I, I think it has it has a lot to do with identity, a lot to do with with being human and how we see other people, right? Cuz there's a lot about there's a lot of eye imagery in this movie. So it's a lot about vision, seeing things from different perspectives. And I, I think there's I, th- I think there's a, a direction, like you said, that the, the movie wants you to go in in terms of like the ending and about who Deckard is. But I don't know if 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 we're going to if you guys want to talk about that. Well, yeah, yeah, we'll go into it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so, Jack, how about you? What would you say if you had to pick like a core theme for this movie? What would you say? I think a lot of it has to do with at least what I've taken from it is how much of our perception of who we are is formed by what we're told by people around us. Like you get the whole thing with Rachel and the, her memories are implanted and you get kind of a reference to, you know, that's the whole the big question is, is Deckard a replicant or not? Um, I, I feel like that's definitely what the intention was. Like you get that scene where he's got, he's got all those pictures of like relatives, like back to like the 19th century on his piano, which I kind of feel like is just driving home. Like his, he's latched onto these memories to like 
hold himself to his identity. I mean, I feel like a lot of it has to do with that and how outside perceptions will shape how you look at yourself. Because like, even though like when Rachel finds out she's a replicant, it doesn't fundamentally change who she is, but that revelation makes her question everything. Right. It, it, it It's that self-identity, right? We kind of take in what the world says about us or what other people says about us and kind of create our own identity, which may be actually diametrically opposed to what our true identity is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that I, I agree with both of you. And I think that there's there's so much philosophically wrapped up in the questions that this movie asks that it's really hard to kind of corner down onto more of a theme than what does it mean to be human? And it this movie just pokes at that question in so many different ways. And it never really gives us an answer or or kind of leads us to a, a, a final, this is what you should think it means to be human. But it, it just keeps kind of digging at that question over and over and over again. Uh, you know, through through the questions of how we see each other, through the questions of what our memories actually mean, through the questions of, you know, what people say about us. And uh, and then it culminates in that that climactic moment where, you know, the 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 speech in the rain uh, that Rooker Hauer gives as um, as he's dying. And it, it's so it's such a beautiful way to just kind of leave the philosophy there and just let it rest and not not have to provide you know, there's, there's no moral to this movie, I think, when it comes down to it, you know, it gets to the end and it's like, who was right? And you're just left with that question. And it's OK to be left with that question. It's I, that's really good, really good works of fiction. Let you walk away without giving you giving you the, the answer. answer. Yeah, that's why I really I was very impressed with the movie that like it didn't try to provide you with pat answers. You know, it's like here is, you know a question and we're going to leave it open-ended. And a lot of my favorite science fiction authors do that. You know, like uh, one of my favorites is Ray Bradbury and a lot of his stories end with more, leaving you with more questions than answers. Right. And some people might find that dissatisfying, but I just find it fascinating because it just allows me to speculate more. And I, and I, I think I caught what may have been a reference to him because the final confrontation takes place in the Bradbury apartments and he's actually written a few android stories so i wonder if that was a deliberate reference oh, i wouldn't no, would be sure, surprised yeah, yeah. <laughs> with ridley scott and the the attention to detail yeah absolutely yeah i think another thing that um another theme running throughout the movie is like control mm -hmm. okay you get um Roy Batty throughout the entire movie, he is seeking to control his mortality because he knows he has his limited amount of time to die. So he's searching for ways to control that. And at the very end, you get him gaining control over Deckard's mortality and letting him live. So he's kind of taking control of that before he dies. That's kind of how that's kind of how I viewed that. I think that's a really good one. I, I one that I noticed this time through, too, was a really interesting concept of uh, of purpose of what it means to have a purpose and the really interesting thing with all of these replicants is that they all are built with a purpose like they have one thing that they do and they do that thing well that's what they're made for and you know we're even given that purpose at the very beginning when bryant is briefing uh decker on the on the um 
on the the replicants, he tells him this this one was a pleasure model. This one was a uh, can lift this much weight and carry it around all day. And so so we know that all of them have a very clear purpose. And the interesting thing is, is that it doesn't help them. It doesn't like, you know, knowing what their purpose is and having that clear purpose laid out for them doesn't make it any better that they're going to live for this amount of time and complete that purpose and then be be done. And I think that's such an interesting way to poke it. The, the the concept that we have that we're always asking what's my what's what's the meaning of life why am i here what am i what am i doing and if you had the answer to that question would it really matter and i think this shows so clearly that no it it, it doesn't help honestly yeah definitely also you get some of that with deckard trying to escape being a blade runner and just getting pulled back into that where even though he at least is under the impression that he is a human, he still falls into that role that has been assigned to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're either a police, you're either the police or nobody, right? Yeah. Right, yeah, which made me question, and I don't actually want an answer to this, which is, what was he doing when he wasn't being a Blade Runner? You know, like... Drinking scotch and playing piano, <laughs> I guess. Meandering around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and that's, I, I think that there's there's a lot of questions that are kind of left unanswered. Like what are all these people doing? Uh, there's all of these exotic uh, animal traders that turns out that the exotic animals are like just fabrications. They're basically replicant animals, right? Yeah. And, and they, they say that those are less expensive than a real animal, which mm-hmm. I was like, what? <laughs> How is a completely genetically replicated animal less expensive? It must be that like, either the real animals are extinct or they're so rare that they're an insanely expensive commodity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get a lot of hints throughout the movie that the world is just absolutely trashed. And so I'm assuming that getting any sort of real thing, like you see no like grass or anything really growing in this movie at all, I think. And I think that just, you're just seeing LA in this, but I think you can kind of extrapolate that out to the rest of the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's one of the, so there's a little bit of overlap between this movie and the novel that it's based on. Um, and this is one of the areas where it overlaps. And it's something that Ridley Scott, I think liked in the novel that he wanted to, to put into the movie. Um, uh, Deckard in the novel is always looking to try and buy his family, uh, an actual animal, like a pet. And he, he, that's one of the things that he wants. He has a wife and, and wants to buy a pet for her to have, because it's a status symbol. It's a, you know, it's, the ability to keep a useless animal around in the society where everything is just gone and basic survival is difficult, uh, is, a, is a status symbol. And that's so, so to, to digress just a little bit, because we, we talked beforehand about the fact that you guys hadn't read, um, do Android's uh, dream of electric sheep, which is the, the Philip Dick novel that this uh, movie is based off of. Um, I recommend it because it's it's good, but I think this movie does such a great job of capturing a deep philosophy and is so interesting on its own that having read the novel, you don't get any more out of this. I, I really think the movie does such a good job at what it does that I, I would not even say that the novel is better than the movie. Uh, I would almost say the movie's better than the novel, but I'm, you know, I don't want Philip Dick to yell at me when I get to heaven. Uh, so, <laughs> so I'm not going to I'm not going to commit to that, <laughs> but it's the movie is really, really good. And the novel's kind of the novel takes a different tack where it's not talking so much about whether or not these replicants are humans, but how they fit into society. 
and how society works where it's got this second class citizenry that is the, the this group of uh replicants that yeah they only live for a little while but they're treated like slaves and that's the bigger issue in the in the novel that that is being dealt with and so decker kind of it, it, the feelings that decker's having about uh retiring them i think are a lot bigger in the novel than in the movie because there's almost not a question that they're human in the novels, just that they're treated as completely throwaway people. So they're, they're fabricated people. Everybody sees them as people, but knows that they're not going to be around long enough to, to care about. Right. One thing that, that slightly confused me is that the, the opening crawl of the movie mentions robotics. So at first I assumed that they were mechanical Android creations, but then the rest of the movie makes it clear again and again that these are bioengineered entities. So that that almost raises the question of, oh, they, they could possibly be human and have souls if they're biological creatures and not, you know, like data from Star Trek, just a mechanical creature with a human-like shell. You know, so I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think they're a lot more like uh, like the human uh cylons in the new battlestar galactica where all for all intents and purposes down to basically the cellular level you cannot tell if they're human or not Mm -hmm. we had a long discussion about this before (laughs) before we watched the movie because my kids were asking so they're robots and uh, my wife's like yeah they're robots and i'm like no they're not (laughs) not robots there's so there were there was some uh, some disagreement in our household about whether or not they were robots and i i think I don't want to give too much away from the sequel movie because I would like for us to review that one as well. Uh, but you will get some of those questions answered and many more raised when you watch that, when you watch that movie. But yeah, there's, there is um, the concept, I think. And, and if you go back and look at Philip Dick's work, the, the body of work that he does, he was very interested in biological computers. So the concept that you could grow a computer and that it would be it would use neurons and it would function like a human brain and and that it would it was faster than computing because we are faster than computers. We do all of our all of our calculations that we do. We do faster than computers. It's just that we do so many of them that it's impossible for a computer to replicate that breadth of stuff that we do. So a computer specializes on, you know, the, the mathematics, like the really quick ones and zeros. And uh, my daughter actually made a really cool comparison because she's just finished reading Dune. And so she's like, oh, so they're like the, they're like the Mintats from Dune, like the, these people that are raised to be human computers, basically. And I, I was like, yes, it's, that's a very similar concept. And, you know, taking that uh, taking page from kind of Frank Herbert's uh, way of looking at the world. That's, that's a good way to look at the replicants is that they, they are human. They're just, you know, grown in a test tube and come out as adults and live for the, the amount of time that they're designated to live for and then die. Which makes it worse that they refer to the, as retiring them because it dehumanizes them. They're like, Oh, you know, they're not killed or murdered. They're retired, which makes it, clinical and you know you just get that euphemistic yeah exactly on yeah well and and i think that's that's one of the great things that they deal with in the movie is looking at deckard's character and the effect that it's having on him because he he doesn't want to do it he's he's done he's he's out he does he has no taste for it anymore right he looks traumatized in some of those scenes when he has to 
retire, you know, one of these replicants. Like that's where I thought Harrison Ford just did a terrific job. I completely bought that he was traumatized. Yeah, there's that great scene where he comes back um, after uh, after Rachel shoots the the replicant that's attacking him. And then they come back to the apartment and they're drinking together. And he says, yeah, I, I get the shakes, too. It's part of the job. And she says, I'm not part of the job. I am the job. And oh, that that just it's such a gut wrenching moment where, you know, and everything's timed so well, because it's like she just lets it hang for the longest time before she says, I am the job. And it's like, oh, is, is, is that the same scene where that where she asks him, do you take the test yourself? I can't remember because like, there's that test where you look at someone's mm-hmm. eyes to tell if they're a replicant or not and emotional responses. I think that was the previous okay. scene, the first time she comes to his apartment. They yeah. never answer that question, which I thought was great. We don't know whether he's taken the test himself. <laughs> well, when you get some of those questions in the test, you're like, I don't know how I would answer that. I'm not sure. Like, what would be what would that cause an emotional response in me? I, I don't know. Imagining a turtle laying on its back in being completely dependent on my helping it i i might have an emotional response to that if if i'm if that's the middle of a hundred hundred questions like that right (laughs) so yeah i i don't know it's 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 a great movie to really just to dig at your brain and so you know you got to kind of let it and let that philosophizing wash over you and and marinate in it for a while and I definitely recommend if if you've only ever seen it once, watch it a second time because it it is a movie that does not hold your hand, and you will notice so many new and different things the second and third time through watching it because uh, there's things you know at at the end that you don't know even five minutes before that, <laughs> and and uh, you know that that Rutger Hauer scene at the end when he's when he's giving that soliloquy about the you know seeing the ships on fire and having been close to the Tannhauser gate and that all of these memories that he now has that are real memories that are his memories that are actual things that occurred that they're just going to die with him and lamenting that and and not having that sense of that character even five minutes before when he's kind of turning into an animal and just banging his head through walls and sticking himself with nails it bothers you the first time through and then the second time through when you get through that you're watching him just unravel because he's he's because he's about to go yeah yeah. He's, yeah and he's grieving for himself and that he's grieving for the fact that he can't change the world and it's 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 all of us like it's that's the thing is that you know as a replicant yeah fine he's he's having this moment but it's all of us struggling against life and going Oh, I just I can't change the world. And I, uh, if I if I could just change the world, I might, you know, if I could just do one little thing, it might make a difference. And, and yeah, I felt like when, uh, when when he confronts Tyrell, it almost like represents humanity trying to confront God and saying, like, why don't we live forever? Why do we have to die? You know, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, I got very I got a lot of Paradise Lost vibes from his interactions with Terrell. Yeah, no, it was really, it was a good moment. And it was, I, and and I love that they, they don't directly address the, the God issue, but he does open up by saying, it's not often that, uh, that, uh, well, how is how is it that he says it? You meet your maker. Uh, he, I think he, he meets your maker. Yeah, yeah. It's not often that you get to meet your maker. And that's, 
yeah, and that's as close as you're going to get to like a real like, okay, I'm running into God at this moment, but it's it's definitely a weird moment that they really portray very well and how strange it is. So I think the other thing that I that I I really like about this movie is that it's definitely an 80s movie. <laughs> and um, I love that you both smile at that because that means, you, you know, where I'm going, where I'm kind of uh, settling with it, because I, I think that there was just something about 80s movies that like you would not see the same kind of movie now. And I, I really do think that I'm, I'm, I'm torn. I would like to see what Ridley Scott did did with it if he could redo it. But at the same time, Jack, I'm kind of with you where it's like he's gotten to that Prometheus. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I know. I I had a feeling you were going to bring that one up too. Um, yep. where where he's gotten to that commercial uh aspect of making movies and he kind of knows the formula now. And this this movie definitely doesn't fit any kind of formula at all. Mm-mm. So I uh, how do you guys feel like if this movie had come out in the nineties, maybe the early two thousands, would it have done as well? I mean, if it came out how it was, I think, I think if it, you could, this movie could have come out now and would do better than it could at any point since the eighties, because I feel like movies are kind of turning back in the direction of being more interesting and taking more risks. Like you saw with like how, how the new Dune movie does a lot more interesting things and you get directors like Denis Villeneuve who can do those interesting kind of stories and also do it in a way that it's going to bring in more than just like the art film audience. Um, but I don't, I don't think this movie would not would have fared well or been made well if it had come out in like the past 15 or 20 years. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I, and I, that's why I think that, cause I, I know that Denny Villeneuve did the sequel and I think he was just the perfect choice for that. Cause I first became aware of him from arrival, which is one of my favorite sci-fi movies ever. I love that movie. And I just this movie, Blade Runner reminded me a lot of it in terms of doesn't hold your hand. It leaves you with all these questions. There's a lot of visual storytelling. And so I just feel like, yeah, that there there are movies. Thanks to directors like Denny Villeneuve, I think we're starting to see some of these types of movies again. And I'm really into this kind of sci fi. So because I love when sci fi can really address the big meaty questions you know i I love like crowd-pleasing sci-fi movies like star wars and and all the rest of it but i just love that kind of sci-fi that can really dig its claws into something and i feel that we're like you said uh jack i think we're starting to see cinema turn around at least in certain genres yeah i think ex machina would be a movie you could kind of compare this to as a modern a modern take on the same kind of story though it does it in the only way i think it could have it takes it makes the scale very very small like you're in that one house for that whole movie and so it does the same kind of thing but it does it in a a budget where it was feasible and it was not a big major hollywood movie yeah that's interesting because i because this movie is the exact opposite of that right where it's it's huge it's it, it spans i mean it's one city but it spans the whole city and it it really gives us a sense of uh, of how big life is and how crammed in everyone is, and I, it would have it would have been a very different movie without that. And twenty forty nine cheats. I, I will say that that uh, it it 
captures some of the same stuff, but in a, in a good way, it, it cuts those corners so that it doesn't have to deal with some of those like, well, how big are we going to go with these? Are we going to get a whole model crew in here to make all of these you know, sets and stuff like that? So he kind of he avoids the necessity of some of that with some of the ways that he chooses to frame things. Um, beautiful movie. Really. I'm, I'm looking forward to us having another discussion about that one in the future. Cause it, yeah, Denis Villeneuve does, does an excellent job resurrecting the concepts and even taking it a step further too. I think there were some things that just weren't asked in this movie, which is phenomenal because it leaves you with so much uh, to think about, but he, addresses some some other issues that have come up since so he, he kind of like says okay since the 1980s we've had all of these things happen let's ask those questions too and just plops them right down in the middle of the movie so it's it's really good i'm it, it, definitely an excellent follow-up to this one so yeah i think the the thing that i that i like about it is that the the director's cut in the final version the final cut um took out that hand-holding that was available in the first theatrical release and made this a much bigger movie that could fill its breath and really go somewhere uh, where the other one was, the other one was good. You know, the, the theatrical release was really interesting, but it was a detective movie set in a cyberpunk universe. <laughs> and that's kind of where, that's kind of where it stopped. <laughs> so, so I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the the themes of cyberpunk in general. Uh, so I know Jack, as you said, this kind of made you want to go play more cyberpunk 2077. Uh, and I'm, I'm intrigued because it's a genre that's like really coming back into its own right now. And it, it, it kind of got lost for a little while there because I, I feel like everybody was moving into the whole uh, social media uh, kind of boring dystopia uh, era <laughs> and so it was just we were just kind of lost in that vr headsets uh movement of things and we're finally getting back into this more uh you know anti anti-corporate uh you know anarchistic uh craziness of almost mad max not quite because it's still inside the cities you know i I like that. I love that that genre. So how much do you guys know about that genre and how much have you kind of experienced it? I mean, honestly, other than Blade Runner and the Cyberpunk 2077 game, I I kind of know about it, about it just through osmosis, but I've not read like any Neil Stevenson or anything like that. Yeah, same. Like, you know, I've seen cyberpunk settings. Like I said, you know, like Batman Beyond has a very kind of cyberpunk aesthetic obviously influenced by this movie but yeah it it's it's something i've known about but have not really been too interested in i must say that i like the kind of retro futuristic cyberpunk of this movie more than like some of the more contemporary stuff that i've seen but that that's yeah, just I, an aesthetic thing well but i think I, I think if you get into the cyberpunk genre you'll find that a lot oh, like okay. the retro futuristic thing is very yeah. it's a very common theme in the cyberpunk stuff so uh jack you mentioned neil stevenson excellent author uh for the cyberpunk uh william gibson's another one that's really good to get into and i i think both of them have the same same difficulty you know we, we were talking before about uh philip dick's novels and it's it's very difficult to put a philip dick novel into a movie and it's it's very difficult for Neil Stevenson and William Gibson. Both of their their books are very difficult uh, to put in as well because they deal with these outside themes 
and and the problem is is that their stuff is so cinematic too like it it's, oh my gosh yeah it's really I love, good cinematic stuff i love neil stevenson's anathem and mm. if i could make that into yep. a television show i would that book is mm-hmm. amazing yep and, and and that's that's all of their stuff is just it's so amazingly interesting and cinematic but it just doesn't get i'm i'm not sure why especially with as popular as this movie is and maybe it's just that this movie is like cult popular and I've just, you know, I've grown up around it. And so I don't really realize how how many people don't know about Blade Runner, because I know my wife didn't know it before or my, my wife hadn't seen it before I showed it to her. So uh, that's kind of an interesting, interesting spot to be. But I would love to see more. More movies like this that do allow the questions to just sit and not have to have a clean, tidy wrap up at the end. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would say this movie, it's it's one of those movies that I feel like everyone should know, but most people I talk to who are not already into science fiction or this kind of thing haven't seen it or don't know about it, but it has such a big influence on so many other things. So it's almost like the underground Star Wars where it influences a lot of things, but I feel like no one beyond people who are already into science fiction know about it like even people who don't care for science fiction know star wars or have seen star wars but I feel like this movie is kind of it's more niche in its in its appeal yeah and as, as i'm a pretty big science fiction fan and i'd obviously heard of it but i i hadn't seen it yet probably because this is not a movie i would have seen as a kid and so i just kind of you know I let it go for a while and then I'm like, oh, we could do this podcast. Like, I need to watch it now. <laughs> but yeah, like, yeah. perfect. perfect. But, but now that I've seen it, it makes me appreciate so much, so many other, you know, stuff that I had no clue that was influenced by this movie. And it's funny, it kind of came back around and influenced Star Wars in a way, because those those opening shots over mega Los Angeles, I'm like, this is like. Reminds me of the speeder. Of yeah, not. it yeah. reminds me of the speeder chase from from the uh, from episode two, especially like when, when they're yeah. going through those towers that have like the jets of flame coming up. There's an environment mm-hmm. just like that in the speeder chase in Attack of the Clones. And I'm like, mm-hmm. so it's it's yeah, kind of come back and everything. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that um, Lucas watched this movie and probably kicked himself for not doing some of the things that it had done. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's. It's funny how these guys kind of all developed. And and I think that's the, that's the other thing to remember is, is like categorizing this in that that weird uh, way that we see sci fi movies now, like sci fi movies now are, are standard fare. And so, you know, you, you look at the MCU, the MCU is all sci fi movies, basically, but it's handled in a way that is much more like Star Wars or Blade Runner than like what classic sci-fi was where you had like you know the the giant ants that had been feeding on radioactive oh, thing coming yeah. into the town Love and attacking movie. it's yeah, yeah. And, and they're they're great movies but they're totally different than yeah. <laughs> what yeah. this is you know because it's like it's it's almost campy and silly uh and and it's good because it asks questions but it but it was just kind of goofy in the way that it was presented and now you and then, but then you go to, to star wars to blade runner to alien and you have these movies that are like centered on a group of people that are trying to to declare their space in the world that they're in and the world that they're in is different than ours and it and and it's something that's that's foreign to us but at the same time we know the characters because we've all been there and 
it was such a great formula that these guys were coming up with to to make these movies and and make them truly different from stuff that had come before and influence all of the things that have come after. Yeah, very, very character centric, very character focused, whereas some of the earlier creature features are great. I love them, but a lot of the characters are cardboard and most of them are just there to get eaten by the monster. Whereas the, a lot of these, like you know, like like Star Wars, you really care about the characters. And like I was saying, Deckard, I I really cared about him in this movie. You know, like a very much a, a character study, and I was very impressed with that. All right. So, any final closing thoughts you guys wanted to bring up? Oh, I just wanted to bring up the one problem I had with the climax. Oh yeah, and that was that. <laughs> oh, yeah. After um, uh, Roy the the main antagonist uh, replicant dies when when the dove flies off into the air i actually laughed out loud and it kind of ruined that moment for me i was like no that symbolism is like he used it like a sledgehammer i'm like <laughs> it sort of ruined that scene i'm like i shouldn't be laughing right now i should be feeling sorry for this guy but it was so abrupt and so in your face symbolism that I was just like, no, <laughs> no. Yeah, there's there's a couple of moments in that last sequence with Roy that just, you know, the nail in the hand yes. thing uh, being very Christ-like. And, you know, it's like, oh, come on, it's, it's too on the nose. You <laughs> right. know? And so yeah. if, if it, you, you, you know, like I know, knowing what I know now about uh, Ridley Scott and the way that he makes movies and looking back at this movie i'm going okay he was a baby movie producer at the time and so he was doing all this really weird avant-garde stuff and somebody finally gave him a half budget to do something uh you know that was going to be cinematic worthy <laughs> and he went with it you know and he just did he did his thing <laughs> so yeah but yeah i agree the there were some symbolism things that were just like really over the top <laughs> all right anything from you jack no, I think think I've covered everything. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I think uh, I, that's that's it from us. Uh, if you, as a listener, have anything else that you would like to add about Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, uh, either the first time you saw it or on rewatch, be sure to email us or comment on our Facebook or Twitter page and let us know. You can email us any feedback by finding StarQuest on Facebook at facebook.com/starquestmedia, and you can find us on Twitter at sqpn. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show in your preferred podcast aggregator or subscribe to us on YouTube and like and share the show. Uh, the best way that we get more people to listen to us is by talking, uh, you know, by our listeners talking to other people about it and sharing. Uh, if you want to find any previous episodes of Secrets of Movies and TV Shows or find another member of our fantastic podcast family, please visit sqpn.com. Also, uh, we've mentioned a couple of times, but I just want to assure everyone, don't worry. We are planning on covering Blade Runner 2049, uh, the Denis Villeneuve sequel to this movie uh, in a future podcast. So be sure to keep your eye out for that. And if you haven't had a chance to watch it yet, I highly recommend it. Very, very good movie, uh, especially if you can follow this one up with that movie in close sequence. They're, they're really good and, and build off of each other very well. So, uh, Thomas Salerno, thank you for joining me on The Secrets of Blade Runner. Thank you, Thomas. It's nice having you. <laughs> it's good to have another Thomas around. It's a good name. Uh, Jack Berzini, thank you again as well. Thanks. And once again, I'm Thomas Senherho. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows on StarQuest. Quest.